Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers for dc Welcome to The Echo Chamber. This is Arthi Shaw. We're here with a broadcast today that commemorates International Women's Day, which is on March 8th. So we're taking this opportunity to speak with APCO founder Marjorie Krauss, who's one of a handful of women who have run agencies, uh, PR agencies larger than $100 million. Um, Marjorie was recent, wasn't until recently um, CEO of the of the uh, agency she founded, and she's now in a in a chairman role. Um, so welcome, Marjorie. Well, I'm happy to be here. So let's talk for a moment about the firm that you launched. In case any of our listeners are are not familiar with with APCO, APCO started what 31 years ago in Washington, and under your leadership has grown to about 118 million dollars in, in fee income with I believe 600 employees around the world. What is also notable is APCO is the fourth largest independent PR agency, and I believe the largest independent agency controlled by by a woman. So tell me a little bit about the climate for women around when you started APCO and, and how you've seen that change over the last three decades. Yeah, the one thing I would just add to what you said is that we're majority employee owned. And so um, we're majority women owned as a result of being majority employee owned. So um, we're not just controlled by women from a management point of view, but in terms of ownership and um, and direction, um, we're, we're unique in that respect. And so given that, that we're celebrating International Women's Day, uh, we have a lot of women within our company to celebrate as well, although we're, we're about 50-50 in terms of leadership and management between men and women. So when I started in 1984, the world was a very different place. And, um, and so I think for a long time, people probably, you know, I always think about the power of being underestimated, which is maybe an asset for a woman, although it always feels like a liability at the time. Um, but I think, you know, just doing good work and um, being very dedicated to the results for your clients allows you to grow irrespective of gender and attracting, being a good place to work and attracting the right people um, allowed us to grow. But I have to say that, you know, I think, um, we have to be a little bit different because uh, we were different and we were competing in markets that were very much driven by a very, especially out of Washington, a very macho uh, approach to communications and public affairs. And, um, and we, we were different by definition. So when you say different, can you expand on that and sort of how, how you saw APCO as being different than other agencies as you started to grow it? Yeah, I think that while um, we've always had, like, really good connections, I think we've had a level of modesty that maybe sometimes doesn't serve us as well as it could. But I would I like to characterize Washington at the time as a time of kind of $1,000 phone calls. People got hired because of who they knew and uh, bragged about things like that. And, you know, we had to be hired by, on the basis of what we knew. I mean, I was not certainly not somebody who, if my name was on the door, would have, you know, I wasn't a former elected official or anything like that. Um, but, you, you know, we built the business by winning trust. So we always had to come up with creative ideas. Um, I think we had to uh, find ways that we integrated a lot of services. Um, at the time, I, um, we were in an era of 
I, I think you'd say specialists. People were either lobbyists or PR people or grassroots specialists. And APCA was like the general practitioner. We tried to be solutions-driven, to listen to people's issues and problems and come up with a very integrated way to look at what the opportunity or problem was. And that's kind of what we exported around the world. And that's what drove our growth. And that was very different than what existed in 1984. So let's let's touch on... Um you mentioned sort of being underestimated because I think that's from, from, from being in the field and talking to a lot of women. I mean, that's something that, that a lot of women still, still face today. Marjorie, that's something you probably haven't faced in, in a while now that you're, you're so well established, but you're right. It is a bit of a double-edged sword. And can you talk a little bit about, or even give some advice to, to women who are, who are rising in this, in this industry on, on how they can, can handle that? Well, I don't think it ever goes away, and I would say that it still happens, and it happens in so many ways, and, and you know, sometimes you just want to shake your head, <laughs> um, and you say, what year are we living in? Um, but I think that what I, I had to make a decision whether people not taking you seriously or underestimating you, or I'm sure every woman listening to this has been in a room where she has a great idea that nobody acknowledges, and then two minutes later, some guy says it, and everybody goes, boy, that's a great idea. Um, you know, it happens all the time. And, um, and so my, you know, my decision was to use the fact that people underestimated you to, um, to try to take advantage of that situation and to um, be able to, you know, come up with those ideas and provide solutions and drive things in, in a direction um, that people didn't expect. And then as things moved along, um, eventually you got some credit or recognition for what was accomplished. And I think for women um, coming up, I think, you know, we have choices to make about what battles we pick. And I think the idea of being very selective and, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, uh, thickening of the skin that you have to uh, to get over time that is just goes with the territory. And if you're going to be in this business and you're going to compete head-to-head, I think you just have to um, understand that at times it's very frustrating that this happens and you just have to be better than that and go after the work in a very aggressive and um, smart way. So, Marjorie, I wanted to ask you also about um, some some news that that the industry um, that broke in the industry last week, and that was that Omnicom had promoted Karen Van Bergen, who was CEO of Porter Novelli, which is I, the, the the smallest of their three large agencies, um, and she's now CEO of all ten of Omnicom's PR brands. So she's overseeing more than a billion dollars in in PR revenue. Um, there's never been a woman in a role like this at a, at a publicly traded holding company, and I just wanted to get your take on this. I mean, is this What's the significance of this? It seems like it's a, a bit of a game changer for the role that women play in, in, in our business. I think we're in a time when competence is ruling. I think that some of the barriers that existed in the past um, have been pushed to the wayside by competent people like Karen. Um, I think that, you know, if you look at her track record of what she's accomplished, she's earned that position. And, um, you know, kudos to Omnicom for recognizing that they had somebody of great character and strength to take it on. Um, and, and I'd like to, you know, I think that there will be more and more of that. I think in the past, people were just ruled out on the basis of gender. 
And I think that part of the battle, at least for the most part, I like to think is if it's not behind us, it's at least on the side of us. And it's not standing in front of our face the way it may have been 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, so I think that is a real breakthrough moment. And I think we all should celebrate Karen's success. I think that's great. So I wanted to maybe ask you a little bit more about sort of being ruled out because of gender and how that's hopefully um, at least on the way out. A lot of the research that I've seen around gender discrimination in the workplace is is these sort of subconscious biases, right? I mean, it's this idea that uh, yeah, someone with a woman with young children doesn't want a promotion or doesn't want the top job, and it's not it's not even explicit. It's just in the it's 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 a completely subconscious bias that people bring to the workplace with them, and and that seems to me like a really difficult challenge to tackle because it's not like someone's being overtly you know. Um, malicious, right? So how, how do you, do you have any suggestions on how we can tackle some of these? I think that's the hardest one of all, because I think there are, even in our firm where women are very prominent, there are, um, there's just a lot of very good people who are a product of their own, you know, way of operating and don't even realize sometimes that there is unconscious bias. Because men and women do think, I believe, do think differently. That's why having teams of men and women together are stronger than having teams that are all men or all women. Um, And what I've seen, I'm on the board of a a very large uh, company. um, And what, what I've seen that's been very effective is some of the training that goes to um, uncovering these um, unconscious biases for people. And I think that exposing people to their own biases is the best thing we can do because because they're unconscious, um, people will never deal with them if they don't realize they exist. And um, sometimes we just talk past each other. And I think there's a lot that can be done um, through this kind of training. And the very fact that we're talking about this now is a whole new thing. I don't know that people realize this existed. But I'll tell you, in this company on which I serve, um, the men who went through this training came back. I won't say they were shell-shocked, but they certainly were um, surprised, Um, especially those who felt they were really gender-neutral in their approach to their employees um, at, at this whole question of unconscious bias. And there are some very good training programs, I think, that could be helpful. And I think also leadership needs to be aware of that. We need to support um, the idea that this exists both ways, all the way around, and we need to um, kind of call each other out on that, and not in a public way, but in a very helpful and constructive way. Um, But just when you talk about that, I, I have to throw this in because I just read something recently that was a real surprise to me from the McKinsey study about women in the workplace when you talk about when you said mothers don't aren't as ambitious and you know that that's the stereotype in their study they actually found out that mothers were 15% more interested in being in the top exe- being a top executive than women without children which even for me i i i might have had and i have you know 10 grandchildren and three children i i had a bias mm-hmm. so you know i think we all have them and we have to just deal with them 
So you were in um, in Davos this year, and and I understand one of the themes around women's issues was sort of moving beyond just sort of women's empowerment to actually to action, and and we've we've touched on this uh, already, but I'm curious if there's if there's anything else that you think the industry should do to move more into a place of action. I know that you all have some initiatives at, at APCO in place as well. Right. So um, what was interesting about Davos, in the beginning it was women talking to women, and then there were a few men in the room, and we did these exercises. But this time we really got down to business. And I think that people recognize that gender equity is a global issue, and um, that getting women engaged and keeping them in the workforce was a business issue that, um, that cost company money if not addressed well. Um, and is a competitive advantage to the companies who address it well. So one of the things that there was a lot of time spent on, which I think is relevant to our industry, is what happens at the middle levels. You know, I think when we bring people in, we probably have 50-50 or better of the people who come in, you know, not paying as much attention to gender. And then we wonder why there are fewer at the top. And I think from the banking industry and from um, some of the other companies that were involved, one of the things that they talked about was the attrition at the middle and what could be done to address attrition at the middle, which happens for a lot of reasons. It happens because people decide they want to change careers. It happens because people get married or have a life event that changes um, their, their whole concept of work or their relationship to work. But it also happens because the people who are inherently in those positions may be um, may themselves exert certain practices, certain biases that hold back some people and advance other people. And there is a higher proportion of women kind of bleeding out of the systems at that point, uh, women who are highly qualified and who... Um, you know, decide maybe they're going to go start their own business or they're going to go do something else rather than uh, fight a system that is stacked against them. And I think that um, some of the, so there were examples that were given of uh, programs that uh, people are putting in place. And um, several of the CEOs of very big firms, not in our industry, I mean, firms like, you know, banking firms or one of the big four accounting firms, we're all talking about um, how they're holding their managers accountable for that uh, level of attrition and for the gender balance that needs to be promoted at that level so that there's enough women in the pipeline to make it to the senior ranks of their organizations in the future. And so I really felt there was a tangible discussion about what to do um, to get more women into senior positions in companies around the world. Right. I mean, one of the stats that we've noted in our industry is that we are 70% women at all levels of the industry. But if you if you whittle that down to just the, the very, very top senior positions, I mean, really the, the CEO positions, um, that number is down. It flips and it's actually 30% women and 70% male. Um, so, I mean, in our issue, we don't have a pipeline. In our industry, it's not really a pipeline issue. I mean, it's a promotion issue. Um, and it sounds like there were t- there's there's been talk on how to how to alleviate that, right? But I think pipeline and promotion are similar. I I do think 
um, there's a lot of women um, in in the pipeline, but I think the promotion aspect of that, that's what I'm saying, is that, you know, people tend to promote people that, that sometimes think the way they do or look or sound the way they do. And, um, you know, <laughs> I think people, excuse me, need to be held accountable um, to... to um, to mentoring and bringing along people who are different than they are. And I think that will help this uh, gender imbalance. So, but, you know, when I started in the industry, the 30% of women at the top um, was a much smaller number. So let's, let's talk a little bit about um, the business case for, for um, diversity, or in particular in this case, women at the top. I mean, it's important to note I think it was just just two nights ago at the Academy Awards, right, that um, a fellow sort of PR executive and now president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts, Arts and Sciences, Cheryl Boone uh, Isaacs, said, you know, diversity is not a feel-good initiative. It's ultimately good, um, you know, in, in the case of the Academy, it's good storytelling, and in the case of, of PR, it's, it's good business. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, why this should be an imperative and why it's not just a, a, a soft sort of feel-good initiative? Oh, well, there are now um, statistics all over the place that, um, that show that where there's diversity, there's better business results, whether it's more women on boards, whether it's more women in senior management. Whenever there's a balance, the companies do better than when there is not a balance. It is, there is clearly a business case. Um, and I think that's now you know, irrefutable, whether... Whether people can change their culture enough to accept this or move fast enough is a different question, but clearly there's a business case. I think even countries now, you know, if you look at what's happening in Japan, um, I think there's a recognition that if you're going to goose the GDP of the country and you're going to advance the GDP of the country, you're leaving half the population. You're not using all the assets you have. And so there's this whole effort now about women in the workplace. I think if you look at a place like Saudi Arabia, you know, there's a whole initiative in Saudi um, that's led by some really interesting women to train more women in, in STEM and in math and science and, and in biotechnology because they want to diversify their economy. And their economy traditionally was an oil-based economy. And they don't have the uh, human capital that diversification so it's a great opportunity for women and so this is it's not maybe happening as fast as we would all like but I think even in places that we would say have for a long time lagged behind they're catching on in their own way and maybe their own culture cultural style of doing it but definitely there's a recognition that women are important to the success of the enterprise so you mentioned sort of Japan and Saudi Arabia. Do you have any other insight in terms of sort of the unique challenges that, or the different challenges, I guess, that women in countries, you know, outside of the U.S. or even outside of Western-centric nations sort of face that, that that's different? I think there's um, a few of them. Um, you know, that's assuming that we think we don't have a lot here because, as, um, as you know, our policies in this country do not favor you know, working women, you know, we find it hard to do childcare. There's just a lot of um, systems in place, I think, that are inherently, you know, not, not uh, supportive. 
Um, and we've all had to live through those. In other countries, there's a lot better system of daycare or family assistance or whatever you want to call it. Um, but there are some other real barriers in these countries, whether it's um, in certain places, women need permission um, of their, their husband or their family to either go to work or to leave the country or to get on an airplane or to do certain other things that are uh, important in being able to do business. I think in certain other places, I think that women um, until recently, you know, didn't have uh, banking uh, capability or maybe they didn't have the kind of financial um, background or understanding that they needed. Uh, education certainly is an important uh, part of that. And I think it depends what part of the world you go to uh, for what those barriers are. But I've been, I've been spending a lot of time in the Middle East, and we're now doing this big uh, project in Africa on women's leadership. And in both cases, I have to say I'm really impressed by, uh, by some things that I think sitting here in the U.S. you don't think about. And um, some of the most fantastic and um, um, capable women that I've met around the world are sitting in the Middle East. And whether they are wearing, um, you know, whether they're covered women or whether they're wearing Western garb doesn't really matter. What matters is they've been given positions of authority and responsibility. And they are really welcomed and treated. And I think it's um, if you look at some of the gender pay uh, uh, information, it's also interesting that they're probably treated in a more equitable way than some people here. I think in Africa, if you look at the next decade of leadership there about what's really driving growth in Africa, it's all about women's entrepreneurship and women's empowerment. And there are a lot of studies in Africa that show that when women make whatever they make, that they spend it in the villages, raising the kids, um, and for, for purposes that are really um, to help grow the society and the economy, whereas the men spend their money, I would say, in a much more frivolous way. So, and these are generalizations, but I think that, um, you know, that um, the, the uh, kind of obstacles these women face the more they face, the more they um, really have overcome. And uh, I'm in awe of, uh, of some of these women and what they've had to do to succeed. It makes our jobs look easy by comparison. So I'm, I'm curious, Marjorie, to hear your take on sort of this lean-in philosophy that, that, you know, part of this, part of the challenge is women need to change some of their behaviors internally within an organization. Um, you know whether whether that's the the epidemic of of, of the of the female apology, whether um, that's not volunteering to take notes in a, during a meeting, or as I talked to uh, another um, PR executive recently, and, and she said that when she gets very long emails from from women justifying decisions that they made, she will tell them look at look at the emails that the men in the organization sent. They're much they're they're terser. They're they're more decisive. They're more authoritative. And she, her, her counsel to, to young women in her organization is model your emails more like that. So, so do you think that there are behaviors that women should change within an organization? Or do you think organizations should be more accommodating to different styles of management? 
I think both are true. I think for women, um, and I, I, I know this is true, is that, um, you know, women are much more apologetic um, for, are much more um, self-deprecating. If you offer a man and a woman the same job, nine times out of ten, the man will say, great, and it's something he's never done before, and he's, like, all up for the challenge. The women will be very honest with you. They'll say, you know, I never did this before. Are you sure I'm qualified for it? Um, you sure I can succeed at this? Um, and so, you know, if you're in a in a an organization that's more of a mentoring culture, you would take that and use it as a learning moment and give it back to the women and say, why are you doing that? And you know, you'd find a way to help them succeed. But if you're if you're um, maybe have some unconscious bias, who are you going to pick in a situation like that? And what has that woman done for her opportunity to grow? And this doesn't happen all the time, but I think that's definitely something. It's what you say about just the style of men and women um, and the way they react to those situations. I think that women um, have, you know, it was, it, was, uh, in, it was Cheryl's book also in Lean In where she commented about men and women going into a conference room and that the men sit at the table, no problem. The women kind of wait to see if there's enough seats left and they don't automatically come in. So I was in a meeting in one of our Asian countries and I was doing a, a session with the staff, a staff meeting. And um, people came in the staff meeting and the men sat at the table and the women were kind of holding back. And so I told the story, and I had everybody leave the conference room and come back in again, um, you know, just to be conscious of what they were doing. So I do think that women sometimes will do things that do not help. These are all little things, but they're all kind of learned behaviors, maybe by the way we're brought up. And, um, you know, one of the lifelong quotes that I've kind of kept in my head um, it was from Eleanor Roosevelt that nobody can make you feel inferior without your own consent. And I think sometimes um, women should just have that kind of implanted in their brain. And, um, and so if you really think you have a good idea, if you really think you're worthy of that appointment or whatever, you have to stand up for yourself. You can't just want people to give you that recognition. Lots of good, good insight there, Marjorie. Um, so as we as we close um, this podcast, I want to just sort of circle back to APCO's um, to, to, to to your firm because um, at at the start of the year, my my colleague Arun Sudaman did a story on APCO's search for a minority stake investment. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that would mean for the firm and, and sort of any updates on that? Front? Sure. Um, so. What I had told him is that, you know, we uh, did a management buyout about 10 years ago, and that's what enabled us to be majority employee-owned. And that's also what's enabled us to have this very strong culture of um, building the business around our employees and their ability to service our clients and be majority, you know, women, especially this opportunity. So it's very apropos in this setting that we talk about it. So um, I'm trying to, um, you know, 10 years long time for private equity. They own, um, you know, a minority stake in the firm. And what I was trying to do was renew um, the investment in the firm through a new group of private equity. 
and to have that um, align with kind of where we want to take the firm for the future in terms of continuing our employee ownership and our growth um, and maybe in some new directions with some new working capital. So that's what I've been doing for the last few months. And um, it'll be interesting because of, um, you know, there is a perception, and I'll let you know if it's a perception or a reality, whether it's harder for women to raise capital. Um, and hopefully that will be successful. And it's interesting also that some of the most interested people um, have also been women in finance. So, you know, maybe we can make this work for everybody. Indeed, and that's um, that's a story that I know we'll continue to watch very carefully. And you know, for me, being based out here in Silicon Valley, I know that there's so much um, discussion around around the experiences women have when they are raising capital out here. It's primarily um, venture capital, so we'll um, certainly just keep an eye on that. Well, Marjorie, it was a pleasure to have you here t- today. Um, any any parting thoughts on any women and men listening to this organization? I mean, sorry, to this podcast on what on anything tangible that they can bring into their organizations today to help ensure more gender parity. Yeah, I think that um, the one thing that's really important is this is not a um, you know a plus versus a minus game. This is not about uh, men losing things or women gaining things. This is about having a better enterprise. And a better enterprise is one where we partner for the kind of diversity and inclusion that makes us all better. We learn from each other. And so I think that one of the things that we should all have is a little more patience and a little more understanding and um, celebrating our differences and trying to reach across and mentor people who are um, who maybe could learn something new from us um, of the opposite gender, whether it's men to women or women to men. So maybe we could all pledge that for the next year. And that those are those are good good sort of words to to take away from. Um, well, thank you, Marjorie. And we are continuing our broadcast that commemorates International Women's Day, which is on Tuesday, March eighth. Uh, we just heard from AFCO founder Marjorie Kraus. And we're now here with Ogilvy PR's head of media, Jen Rizzi, to talk uh, more broadly about um, the UN um, women's He for She campaign and the the challenge for women um, on a global scale to achieving uh, equality. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. So, Jen, I guess just starting starting off. So, you and your team uh, worked have worked pretty extensively on the UN uh, Women's He for She campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about this initiative? Sure. Um, UN Women um, He for She um, is a campaign focused on making uh, on gender equality. That's its mission. Um, it's not just a women's issue, but it's a an issue. It's an issue that benefits everybody. Um, gender equality in um, education, gender equality and jobs and opportunity, gender uh, equality in, in health, um, and health, and just security overall. It's how do we make um, women's issues um, on the same level that just issues everybody else faces. And it's just about gender equality, but more so, how do we make um, how do we make it more of a focus just on issues? Right? It doesn't need to necessarily be women's issues, like women in business or women in science. It's just people in science, executives in business, um, and that's what we're really focusing on. And for International Women's Day next week, um, we're going to be holding an, a series of events with, with He for She, 
UN Women He for She um, in New York. Um, it's uh, something that we're kicking off called Arts Week in New York. Um, it's about gender equality in arts, culture, and film. And we're going to be doing a series of events next week with um, Emma Watson, um, as well as the First Lady of New York, um, and, and Forrest Whitaker, along with Pamsili, who's the Executive Director of UN Women. Um, we're going to be doing a bunch of uh, activities next week in New York to commemorate the day. So a couple of questions. Um, so first is, it's, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned sort of women's representation in, in film since we just came off of of the Oscars this year, which, uh, you know, racial diversity was, was sort of front and center. But there was also a trending hashtag around the Oscars, um, the, you know, Oscar so male, I think was, was the hashtag. It, 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 will, will this initiative that you're doing next week, will it all, will, will it, it all address kind of some of the criticism around Hollywood, um, specifically, you know, even this year in, in, in the Oscars, um, around the representation of women? Um, no, um, it's taking a very positive approach. It's going to be very much focused on um, just really promoting um, women in film, women in arts, women in, women in, in culture. We're going to be having the event at the, at the, the public theater. We're doing, that's the group that puts on um, plays like Hamilton. Um, that's where it's going to be. Um, there's going to be a bunch of partners there. Um, the executive director of UN Women um, wanted to have um, much more of a positive um, approach to how we talk about um, gender equality around this issue, which is why we're timing it to International Women's Day um, as opposed to the Oscars. Um, and I think it's what the plan is, if, if all goes well, this New York event is going to be a pilot um, for an event that hopefully will take place in different cities throughout the world. Okay, and, and apologies for the for the background noise. There is a large, it looks like a moving truck going up and down the street right now, so um, it's, it's a little bit distracting, but hopefully all of you listeners and Jen are not are not hearing it as, as loudly as I am. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit more about... Um, the importance of having male allies and the importance that, that gender equality, you know, is not just a woman's issue. And, and we've seen this increasingly, for instance, around parental leave, right, which for a long time had, was framed as a, as a woman's issue, as a, as a maternal leave issue. And, and thankfully that, that's, that we've seen that change now. We've seen this, you know, be addressed as a parental leave issue in part because I think millennial men are demanding um, that they, they, they have a desire to stay home with, with new with new babies as much as much as mothers do, and then we also see uh, you know companies like Google and, and Facebook doing equal time um, paternity and maternity leave, or, or or I guess it's maternity and, and partner leave. So um, so so we, we are starting to see progress on this front. So Jen, I just wanted to get a little bit more insight from you in terms of why it is so important that this is seen as a human rights issue and not just um, just siloed as a woman's issue. And, and the second part of that question would also be, you know, what's the importance of having men, you know, male allies, which, which I know is a key part of the He for She campaign. Well, just to unpack that a little bit, um, I would say that, you know, we're seeing much more of a focus on, on gender equality and diversity in general um, in, in many different industries. I mean, obviously, communications, PR, marketing, advertising, um, it's, we're getting to where we need to be. Um, I think there's been some great strides made. I mean, I think that you guys have seen some of the recent coverage which talks about, you know, we work in an industry um, where women hold a lot of leadership positions, uh, but at the very, very top, it's still not focused um, on women. Um, so I think what we're starting to see is, is a shift, right? So 
So at, at Ogilvy specifically, I mean, we've had our, our global CEO, Stuart Smith, has been in place um, for almost a little over a year now. Um, since he's come on board, he's not only created his executive committee, but he's created a worldwide board, of which I'm one of eight other women that sit on this board. It's a 17-person board, but uh, nine people in total are women, and it's about getting new and different types of perspective together um, for Ogilvy. Um, here also, John Seifert, our new global CEO, um, he, for Ogilvy and Mather, he's created a program, 30 for 30, which is about um, really empowering and fast-tracking successful women leaders um, in the company. It's a North American program, uh, but it's about really sponsoring these types of women, um, women sponsors as well as men sponsors. It's just about really making sure that we keep the best talent um, in our company and really create a path for women to succeed. Um, I would say the other part of your question of, you know, what can we do to really create more opportunities for women to be PR leaders and to be leaders in our space, you know, yes, it's about increasing work flexibility. You know, do we really need to have that meeting at 730 in the morning? Does, can, it, can that same meeting happen at 9? Because it will just impact uh, working moms who just have, who can't really juggle all of that, especially when they have to get ready uh, with their kids in the morning um, to, to go take them to school or a daycare. Um, how do we like help to eliminate stereotypes? I mean, that's that's a huge thing um, that we still deal with, deal with every day, and it's something that we're working to fix. And I think I've seen in the industry, and specifically at Ogilvy under Stewart's leadership, it's been great that that, that we're trying to really um, make it just more about being an executive and not really looking at it whether you're a woman or of a different race. Um, and you know, we're trying to create a culture where you know women feel good about promoting themselves. Um, that's really, really important that, you know, a lot of the time, and I'm sure you know, that, you know, men self-promote all the time. Women don't feel that that's um, sometimes the best thing to do. But, you know, you are your best advocate, so you have to be, not be afraid to really share your successes and really go for that next job. I think that what you see is, you see women look at a job and they want to have every car every trait that that position will have, whereas men might look at it and they have maybe three of the ten and they still put their hat in the ring. Mm -hmm. I think we have to be okay with promoting ourselves and, and network networking ourselves better. I mean, we should be on more boards. We should be in the boardroom. We should be putting ourselves forward for the same roles that men do. Um, and I think that we're starting to see a shift and we're seeing the shift in the right places, but we still have a long way to go. So a couple of things that you pointed out there, and one of them is 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 this idea around um, even just just flexibility, and and I wonder, and again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like, it's it's isn't it? I would think that at this point we wouldn't look at like you know doing a doing a a uh, call at nine a.m. instead of seven thirty in the morning as a working mother issue. I would hope right that it's a working parent issue because that would that sort of spreads the burden across men and women and it doesn't put an expectation that women that women need to to carry all of the load of well of course it's it's going to be the mom that's going to need to um to take the kids to school in the morning and and i wonder if that's part of what the he for she like getting male advocates and I, I don't know jen you can let me know is part is part of it sort of you know sharing the load here i think a, a study came out recently that just showed Again, that that the, the vast majority, even in, in two, two in households where you have two working parents, the the majority of sort of the domestic work still falls on the woman, and and I just I, I was just curious to hear whether you're seeing that change 
um, you know, and even, even within the peer industry, are people looking at this more as a working parents issue and less so as, oh, well, we're going to need to move the meeting because of the moms, but more because there are, we have parents at this organization. Well, I think, I think it's, I think it's progress, right? I think it's, we're getting there. I think in general, um, I think it's about increasing work flexibility. Um, I think right or wrong, I think it doesn't always necessarily, it's about the male. It could be about the female, but I think it most importantly, both men and women need to share these responsibilities more, and we need to, it needs to be considered for, for both. For both, but I think that you know companies are trying to offer more benefits like like flex work schedules, and they're trying to create an opportunity where there's more of a work life balance. I'd say for he for she to go back to your other question, um, it's an inclusive movement. It's about inviting men and boys to build on the work of of what's been done in the area of gender equality and have them be a part of of this. Um, to really becoming change agents, to achieving gender equality. And we want them to be sponsors for women um, and really be at the table helping to not only empower women but sponsor them to really make a difference um, on an equal playing field with them because that just really benefits all of humanity. Mm-hmm. So what, I mean, as, as, a, as a mother of a, of a son, he's only, he's only uh, 15 months, but, I mean, you know, I, I think a lot about this. It's like how do you, you know, you, how do you, how do you raise a, a feminist boy um, or, or, or someone who's a champion for, for girls and women? I mean, obviously there's, there's role modeling that happens, but I'm just curious in, in, in your work with he for she, if you found any, you know, any, anything that really resonates and really gets men um, motivated and, and um, activated to, to really advocate on behalf of women. I think the campaign overall, you and women, he for she is very inspiring and very inclusive and, you know, it started with Emma Watson's speech at the UN um, a little, like, over 18 months, over a year and a half ago. Um, we haven't really come across anyone that hasn't wanted to participate. I mean, the, re- the reaction from celebrities has been fantastic. Bunky Moon has made this a major priority for him, not only for UN women, but for the UN overall. And take it down to even just a general population issue. I mean, we have so many men. Um, from so many different walks of life and geographies and different parts of the world who have joined the campaign and just are, and say, what can I do to participate? What can I do to help make a change? I think that, you know, that reaction has been fantastic, which is why we're at a stage of with the campaign of starting to do new and different things in new and different areas like He for She Arts Week next week that's launching around International Women's Day. Um, that's about really... Um, arts, culture, and film, um, but that's another area that needed to be gone into. Next, um, it could be something that's done on a retail level. Next, it could be something that's done in healthcare. We've never really, we haven't really seen people not want to be a part of it. They're just trying to figure out how they can participate and how to have the most impact. And I think he or she wants to be a catalyst, but they also want to empower people to do their own thing. So. Do you have any reaction to things like, um, like the sort of men men's rights movement that that seems to be? I don't I don't know when its origins are. I'm guessing there was always some element of it that's always been 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 around, but it seems to be kind of have become much much more vocal um, in recent years. Do you have any any? I mean, what what would you say to people that that that, that will say, well, there's too much emphasis put on put on women, and I'm not trying to necessarily give that that side like equal time right now it's just more like how you know what, what do you as an organization do you face do you face critic those criticisms and what's your response to that or 
I think it's been it's been a movement of positivity. It's been a movement of inclusion. It's been a movement of trying to inspire and engage people. Um, there hasn't really been anything that I would say was not on the positive side. Um, I you know there are a lot of organizations that want to partner um, with he for she, and I think that that's something that the team is really looking at, not us as the agency, but them internally. Um, and they're keeping us in the loop as, as they make decisions. But I've just seen nothing but positivity relating to this campaign. So let's talk a little bit about the spokesperson, um, Emma, Emma Watson, um, because she is such a mainstream and such a popular figure. And she was, you know, part of one of the most popular franchises in the last in the last um, decade. So um, what, what kind of response are you getting around around her? And what does it mean for the movement to have someone so such a high profile person um, associated with, with, with the cause? I think um, it's a great example of how to leverage the power of celebrity to bring um, attention to a major cause. When she gave that speech um, at the UN, it, it was a moment that was, was, was started a lightning rod around the world, right? It, it, was, it was amazing. And I think Emma's commitment and passion to this cause and commitment is, is, is so inspirational. Um, I think it's about, though, bringing not only Emma, but other different types of spokespeople to the table as well. I mean, having the First Lady of New York, who did a PSA that's now playing in every New York taxi cab right now in the city, um, who's, a, who's really supporting He For She, Young Women He For She, supporting Arts Week. Um, it's, it's, it's an inclusive movement. And then you have the 10 by 10 by 10, which is bringing different executives, um, academics, and other stakeholders and leaders together to, for the cause it is huge, too. So, yes, the power of celebrity is, is so important, but it's also about bringing the other right stakeholders to the table as well so we can actually reach all the right areas and all the right issues that helps to really support the mission of gender equality. Sounds like a, a great a great event. Well, Jen, is there is there anything else that we have not touched on with with regards to, um, for instance, our industry in particular, and what can be done to help women sort of achieve parity at at the, at the highest levels of leadership? I mean, we we still you know I think you, you cited the stat earlier, right? I mean, so at all levels, um, our industry is about seventy percent female, and then when you go to the really this the top level positions, I mean, really like the C really the, the CEO level positions, that number flips and it's, it's uh, 30% are women. Any other, any other thoughts in terms of what we can do as an industry to help for there to be more, more gender parity at the top? I think, I think that there's, um, I'm seeing change from the colleagues I have here, but also my colleagues in the industry overall. I mean, I think that some of the points I mentioned earlier, it's not just about Mentorship, I think sponsorship is key. It's sponsorship is key for, for women to promote other women and for men to promote women um, and, and women to promote men. I mean, I think that that's, it, it's huge. Um, I, don't want, I don't want it to be like just a gender issue, but sponsorship in general is so key. Um, I think women need to be much more um, assertive and okay with promoting themselves. Um, it actually is what's going to help them move forward and get, get to those next levels, um, taking credit. Um, and not being afraid to be assertive, um, and joining more groups and being much more networked um, and working together with not only other women but men to really make people know what they're doing and to really realize that this is a marathon. Our careers are marathons. They're not sprints, and you have to always think about the long term. 
Um, but I think it's it's a great it's a great time to be. I think in our industry, when you have so many leaders, specifically the leaders at the top, that want to see change and want more diversity. And I think it's a it's, it's a great time to see what's next. Well, thank you, Jen. I appreciate your taking the time today to talk a little bit about this. And thank you to all of our listeners, and thank you to our production team at Marketers 40C. And we will be back with another Echo Chamber in in a couple of weeks. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.